This is Spine, how books are put together. I'm your host, Hiba Tahir. For those of you who are our regular listening audience, you're probably wondering where host Holly Dunn is. No worries, Holly is busy recording our next season of design interviews. We've got a good lineup coming along and we can't wait to share it with you. With this episode, we're starting something new. Occasionally, we'll be offering you a bonus episode in which I have a conversation with an author about their upcoming book, the writing process, or anything else they'd like to discuss. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Chris Waldhair, author of The Lost History of Dreams, releasing April 9th by Atria Books. Chris talks to us a bit about her process for writing the novel, how she came to be a novelist, and a few other related topics. Here's Chris. I started out as a children's book illustrator. I also designed children's books. And gradually I segued into writing nonfiction and shorter gift books that were mainly oriented around women's history. I wrote a book called Doomed Queens. I wrote another book called Bad Princess. And I think that my book was the most popular, at least according to sales, who can tell emotionally otherwise, though I still get fan mail for it, is a book called The Book of Goddesses, which was a, it started out interestingly as a children's book, but then I expanded it into being more of a gift book after it went into a second printing. So that's what I was primarily known for, was making these really ornate, beautifully illustrated, at least I hope people thought they were beautifully illustrated, that was my intention, books. Then something weird happened to me that I I refer to as my midlife crisis. Instead of getting a Maserati or having a wild love affair, I did something called National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo for short, deciding that I would see if I could actually do this fiction writing thing. And to my surprise, I loved it so much that I ended up completely changing my career. So now I'm a novelist, though I still do illustrate books. And I still occasionally design things as well as am a generally creative person. But I have to say that writing novels has really become my first love. And now my first novel is coming out, which is called The Lost History of Dreams. And it's being published by Atria Books, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. So it's been kind of a, of a wild journey in a lot of ways. When I started write, writing and illustrating children's books 30 years ago, I had no idea I would end up writing a novel, but here I am. Was it difficult to transition into being a novelist? I had quite the learning curve, shall we say. And I don't know, to say a word like difficult, because it's such a gradual progression that looking back, I can see like, yes, it was difficult. If I knew everything I had to do, would I have done this? And I really don't know if I would have, but it was so much fun along the way. Even though it was a lot of work, I really have no regrets. I mean, I think the hardest thing was was just getting started. And that's why programs such as National Novel Writing Month are so wonderful. To recap, National Novel Writing Month is usually every November, and it's in which a group of, I think last year it was like almost half a million people around the world write a novel, not collectively, I should say, but an individual novel. So there's half a million novels being written during that month. And they, the idea is that 50,000 words is what comprises a novel. So if you write this quote-unquote novel within a month or 50,000 words, then you've won it. So I did churn out 50,000 words during my first NaNoWriMo, which kind of proved to me that I could write long-form fiction. And from there, I felt like the sky was the limit, even though there were a lot of different progressive difficulties along the way. So was that the project that became The Lost History of Dreams? Actually, no, that was another novel that it's now called The Cult of Beauty. And I'm still working on it all these years later. But The Lost History Dreams was the second book that I began when I became a little stymied with The Cult of Beauty. And I also did work on 
the Lost History of Dreams during National Novel Writing Month and various times, because it's just a great way to get those words out without having your inner critic get too much in the way. But there's a strange inception to the way The Lost History of Dreams came about that I can talk about. Um, I actually had the title for The Lost History of Dreams before I knew what it was about. It kind of came to me one morning when I was in that dreamy, half-awake state that you're not quite there yet. And I just kind of heard in my head, Lost History of Dreams. So I wrote it down and I thought, wow, that would be a great title, though. I have no idea what that book is about. And it was on a post-it note in my studio for about a year. And I still, I was, I was just really uncertain what it was. But then the second point, which kind of spurred the novel into coming into actually having something concrete, like a story, which people can actually read, was a dream that I had. And in the dream, I witnessed a young woman arguing with a gentleman over an inheritance, and they were in the shabby room lit only by a fireplace. And I had no idea who these people were or what they were arguing about beyond this inheritance, which wasn't even specified. But I could see they were dressed in mid-Victorian clothing, and they really captured my imagination. It was almost like I had time traveled or something, or I don't know. I, I don't know if I believe in past lives or not, but it felt like that because it felt so visceral and so real. So I wrote it down and I kept thinking about it. And gradually I connected the title of The Lost History of Dreams to the scene. It took me about three years for it to come to the place where it is now that it's it's now being published as a book. So it's been it's been very exciting. I think that one of my main takeaways from my process of writing The Lost History of Dreams is that you you can't underestimate the the process and the power of these sudden inspirational flashes that come to you and to see how they all come together in time and to just kind of trust them if that makes sense. Starting from the stream that you mentioned, can you talk me through the writing process for this novel? Let's take the creative process first and then we can talk about the publishing side of the thing. As I had said, I did start with this dream, which I wrote it out as a scene, even though I had no idea what was going on. And through writing the scene, I got a sense of who the people might have been. From there, I just started brainstorming. It was a very strange experience in which I would have these flashes of scenes, of images, snippets of dialogues and characters. And um, these flashes would come to me to unexpected and something inconvenient times, such as taking a walk is one way that I, I find it really spurs my creative flashes, if you will, because that's what they feel like. They feel like flashes, like you just suddenly you're walking and you hear something and you write it down or you imagine something and you try to remember it. Or sometimes there's even some thing that I prefer not to do, like washing dishes. I hate washing dishes, but I have to say that they do work. It does work well for getting into that that state of being receptive. I also, a lot of times, I, art will spur these thoughts, such as like paintings and photographs. For example, I saw a painting by Walton Ford in the Smithsonian, and it was of migrating pigeons lifting a tree limb. And this became a scene in my book, which two of my characters see a very similar experience with migrating pigeons, and it becomes kind of a big turning point. Anyway, so I do keep these notes of these flashes, and gradually they will reach critical mass. And a lot of times they're written down. I have a notebook I carry with me that I'll, I'll write these ideas or even a word or whatever down. My iPhone is great for the middle of the night when you wake up and you have this strange dream. I'll type it into it. So once all of these notes reach critical mass, I organize them into an inspiration file where they percolate until I get a sense of how everything connects. 
with the lost history of dreams, this is going to sound really crazy, but I had 25,000 words of notes before I actually began to write in earnest oh, the wow. novel itself. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of intense, but they were, you know, snippets of like short conversations or descriptions of characters or descriptions of, you know, even a place. So then once I'm finally able to begin drafting in earnest, I rearrange my notes and they're almost like puzzle pieces. Sometimes I'll put them on post-it notes and I'll put them on a board and I move them around. Other times it's a little more um, linear in that I'll work in a program. For example, I love using the program Scrivener, which it's kind of like Microsoft Word, but on steroids, <laughs> because you can put all these different documents and rearrange them as you like, whereas with Word, it's a very linear it's sort of a strange thing in which when everything comes together, I can feel it in my gut. It's very intuitive. And I know that I believe I have plenty of author friends. I know that most people do not work this way. Most of my author friends are much more linear and are able to like kind of know their story from the beginning before they even start writing or they, they just know the trajectory. But I've, I've discovered with myself that whenever I try to harness myself into working in a more linear fashion, I end up losing a lot of the unexpected inspirations, which I think, I hope anyway, make what I write different from what other people write. But I also, I also should set into context, most of my friends do not spend three years writing a novel that they're able to just kind of get it out and then revise it. I have discovered that I just don't work this way. And that's okay. I've come to accept it that it's just a non-linear, intuitive way. But that's also who I am. You know, as a background as an artist, I don't view things in a very linear fashion, and that's okay. Do you think that's going to impact how you approach your future novels? It already has. In that, now that I understand my process, I have been able to streamline it. For example, I understand that the more research I get in the earlier on, since I am writing historical fiction, the easier it is for those flashes to be spurred, if that makes sense. It's kind of like I know what kind of um, gasoline my engine takes for it to run smoothly, which is, I guess, a weird analogy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I know it works. You know, I know that if I go and I look at museum pictures, sometimes I'll get ideas if I if I go traveling, because I did travel quite a bit for Lost History once I knew what the basic story was. And um, it, it just, in the long run, it goes much more smoothly because I'm not forcing it, a story into being before it's really ready. I kind of have to, I'll use another bad analogy. It, it's like I have to wait for the, the yeast in the, in the bread dough to, to rise to a certain point before I can start shaping it into something. So that's what I do now. I, I think that with all artists, just understanding your process is the biggest and most important part of working in a way which, one, you're happy, and two, you're efficient. And sometimes what's being efficient is recognizing that you're not very efficient. The historical detail and the attention to historical detail is incredible in this novel. Oh, thank um, you. Did you talk us that through the cool. research process there? Oh, wow. Well, um, I already mentioned looking at, at photographs and pictures and such. But um, this book, uh, one of the interesting aspects of it, or what I think a lot of people are finding so intriguing about it, is that my protagonist, whose name is Robert, is a postmortem photographer. And that was something that I did do a fair amount of research about, because it, it's not something that, as a 21st century person, that we, we see 
as part of our lives. Um, it's not like we go to funerals, we snap pictures of the of people who are lying there in their coffins or whatever those, I mean, some people may, but it's not really a part of our culture in a, in a way that's acknowledged. So at the time that I was working at Lost, on Lost History in Earnest, my mother-in-law had died um, not that long previously, so did my mother. So I was very aware of, of the process of mourning and how tender I felt all the time, but yet, Unless somebody knows you well, and like if you're walking on the street, people don't really know what you're going through. They don't understand why maybe your eyes might be puffy or, or why you just maybe feel very sensitive or, you know, even sometimes in the morning process, I found like I just didn't really want to go outside very much, if that makes sense, because you just feel so tender. So I, I became very interested in Victorian morning rituals, which they really helped the bereaved grieve. They helped them process the unimaginable and take comfort in the and the fact that maybe there was something more than what could be seen, that the person that you love so much wasn't gone. So I researched that in great depth, as well as post-mortem photography. So, and, you know, I even read the handbook that Louis Daguerre had written for daguerreotypists and how to, to make them, um, you know, I try to look as much at period and first primary sources as I can. So that was a big part. It was just understanding the technical point of view of making a daguerreotype as well as understanding the process of mourning for Victorians where you would wear, you know, your full mourning for a year, or your half mourning for another six months, but also that dependent on how close you were to the person who passed away. So beyond that, I also traveled quite a bit. I went to England twice where I walked the past that my, my, my characters went. Um, I also did on-site research in the library that was closest to where my story takes place, which was in Shropshire, because they had a lot of archaic information about 19th century inns, train routes, coach routes, maps, local wildlife, and more. You know, I, I just tried to get a sense of what would my characters have experienced living in 1850 England in this particular place that I, you know, even if I'm traveling there, I can't experience this because it's now, you know, 2017 when I was there. So that was a large part of it. I also went to Paris and I went to Sever where a big part of the story has takes place uh, because there is another thread about, about St. Glass, which I also researched. I hadn't realized when I went into this that there's a stained glass chapel. I should preface it by saying there's a stained glass chapel, which is an important plot point because it's locked and it's kind of known as this most beautiful place it ever was only no one's ever seen it to all its reputation but I became very interested in how was stained glass manufactured during this time and what kind of patterns would they have this was during the neo-gothic movement but what I had learned which was so fascinating to me was that in during the French Revolution which Sevres, obviously outside of Paris, and Paris was very affected by the French Revolution, I hadn't realized how much stained glass was destroyed as part of the French Revolution. So after things had settled somewhat, there was this, this big push in industry to create stained glass, and that becomes a thread in my novel as well, but I had no idea even was a part of history that, you know, for example, you know, in Chartres, which is this cathedral 
renowned for a chapel, if you will, renowned for their beautiful stained glass. So much of it they took down so it wouldn't be destroyed and others of it was worse taken down. In Notre Dame, they took down the stained glass and they replaced it with plain glass windows and they turned it into an office and food storage. That's so, so interesting. Yeah, it, it's the sort of things that you don't realize until you start researching it and you start going into all these different levels of, of history. And, and much of it doesn't actually end in it end up in the story itself but just having that that understanding it really informs how you write because this is something that your characters would know and they may not even think about it because it's just part of their life but you need to know this as an author right on top of being a historical love story this is also a ghost story can you talk more about that Oh, yeah. Well, the ghost story surprised me as I was writing. That was not part of my original conception. I knew that there was a love story involved because I knew that I was basing it somewhat on the Orpheus myth, which some people, when they read The Lost History of Dreams, they, they see it right away because I have a, a character who is a poet who is, you know, ha has lost his wife in a you know, she died in childbirth and so on and so forth. But I, I hadn't realized how much ghosts would come to play in my story itself. So that was something which was very much inspired by Gothic novels, which I am a huge, huge fan of. And as I wrote, the ghosts started to take over. And it sounds funny to say that, but it really did feel like that. I wouldn't say that I was haunted. It was more that they were just very, very persistent. And they would say, hey, put me in this scene here, put me in that scene there. And at one point I had one ghost who took over so much of the story that my agent said to me after reading draft, said, you have to really cut this back because this is like another book. <laughs> she said, it's a wonderful story, but you really have to decide which is your main plot line. And if you want it to be this ghost story of this particular character, then we're gonna have to rethink this, so. But I also wanted to write about ghosts in a way which wasn't what you would expect. They're almost, the way that I present them, I'd like to, to think that you're not quite certain if they're real or not, whether they're somebody's memories that are so tangible to them because they're mourning so deeply that they can't quite separate one from the other, or if they really are something which which is an actual presence. And I kind of tried to to make it worth both ways. Like I described the ghost as having this this manifestation that sometimes they feel kind of moist or wet and other times they're like a wind or, but they're there, they're definitely a presence and whether or not they're subjective, I guess that's up to the reader to decide as they, as they read my novel. Did you ever get spooked? Um, I don't know I got spooked as much as disturbed, if that makes sense. When I was writing about the post-mortem photography aspect, I definitely felt very, very nervous about that, which I guess is a little bit like being spooked because I did have a number of books about post-mortem photography and I was superstitious about keeping them in one place in my studio where my daughter could not come upon them. <sighs> it was a, an interesting experience, but there's also, they're very beautiful photographs. They're very peaceful and, and you can really see how much, how loved these people were that their families took these photographs of them in order to remember them. And in some case, I'm sure these were probably the only physical representation they had of memory of these people who had passed on. Um, because obviously the Victorians were not like us with our selfies and Instagram. Right. So The Lost History of Dreams is composed of many varying plot lines. The blurb on the back says it blurs the lines between past and present, truth and fiction, and ultimately life and death. 
Can you talk about how you managed to balance all those without making it convoluted? <laughs> Good luck, right? Um, <laughs> again, I work with all, it's almost like puzzle piece, the way I, I see the various scenes and threads. And I, the main, there were, well, let's, let me just present it that there are two main plot lines. There's a primary plot line, which is of the postmortem photographer who was sent out to the Moors of Shropshire to photograph his, his cousin, who is a deceased poet inside this glass chapel that I mentioned earlier um, as part of fulfilling this last request. And, at, and it is as part of inheritance. And then there is the secondary plot line, which is the poet's story of his marriage to his wife, which ends tragically with her dying in childbirth. So I just try to make sure that the stories work together in a way where they, almost like they were commentary on each other, if that makes sense. So I would write, each different plot line separately. I wrote the story of the postmortem photographer and this inheritance and, you know, his quest to daguerreotype him inside this glass folly. And then I also wrote the second plot line, which was the story of the poet and his wife and their marriage. Once I had them written in a way that I was happy with, I then aimed to combine them by interacting there. I don't know if interacting is really the right word as much as intercombining or... <laughs> <laughs> there's stories where it was sort of like it's not it's not like I'm making a film but it feels a little bit like that as I'm editing each scene going into each other like okay this scene is here with this reference to the symbol I'll pick up the scene here with this ref same reference to the symbol but yet they're jumping you know 20 years or whatever so it was <laughs> as you said without getting convoluted I won't say that it was convoluted <laughs> but it was complicated but I'm happy with how it came together. It That was part of also, I think, what took so long was getting the balance just right with, especially with the ghost threatening to overtake everything. Uh -huh. And there's also quite a bit of poetry throughout. Yes. Well, the and my, my, my poet in my second plot line, he had to have an output, of course. And actually, his most famous book is called The Lost History of Dreams. And that's what I decided it would refer to. Or as one of my characters said, you know, you should know the Lost History of Dreams doesn't refer to, you know, all these wonderful things, chimeras of wonder and so on and so forth. It refers to the regrets you have in your life that you've dreamt about and that you've lost. So, so it's kind of goes back to what the poet's story was, where he has all these regrets about his wife and what happened, which gradually come out. So to write the actual poets and poetry itself, though, was was something that I approach with great trepidation because I am not a poet, though I have taken poetry workshops when I was in college, but I don't really identify as such. And to insert poetry into a novel, which is written by this person who was supposed to be kind of like a Lord Byron in his fame was, um, was terrifying because who am I? I am not a poet. I'm certainly not Lord Byron, thankfully. <sighs> so... What I did was I studied the poems that were similar of that era of what I wanted to imagine my poet writing. Then I just, you know, it, it was interesting how I would have a line here and there and I would use a lot of rhyming dictionaries to see what words would rhyme with the line. And then from there I would work backwards. And I also, the other thing that I helped 
to connect the different poems, which I also knew they had to tie into the Orpheus myth in some way. And they do. A lot of them have, you know, like this Eurydice is mentioned, or also I have another poem, which is about the fates that tore Orpheus apart at the end. And so that they do, they are kind of like a, like a cycle and they're written in this, this neo-Victorian way. And I, I still like, I know I did it, but I, I just remember being totally terrified as I did it. So, so there you go. Okay. Now let's move on to the publishing side of things, if we can. Absolutely. Can you and tell that's me? much easier to talk about. <laughs> a little less nebulous and mysterious. Right. <laughs> that is much, so much more straightforward than the creative process. And it, it's much more quantifiable. Basically, um, I do have a literary agent and she's wonderful. And she was in on this project from the beginning when I said, hey, I have this weird idea for this book about a postmortem photography in a glass chapel that's out in the moors and an inheritance. And hey, I had this weird dream and I had the sandwich. She said, let's do it. So I had shown Michelle Brower, my agent at Abyss Literary, who's wonderful. A, it was basically like a page synopsis describing the main plot line of this and that. And she said, go write it. So I did. And every six months or so, I would show her what I was working on and she would give me a little bit of feedback. But then by the time we actually had a manuscript to submit, then it became something which it was very much out of my hands and it was into Michelle's hands, which I have to say, I'm really pleased she handled brilliantly. For those of you who may not know how the publication process works, for a novel, you have to have an entire novel written, especially a debut novel, before you can even show it to an editor. So what happens is that your agent, if it's a really good agent like I have, is that they will call up the editors, they kind of chat up your novel and say, hey, I have this novel, which is, you know, Victorian set, Orpheus Smith, postmodern photography, yada, yada, yada. Would you like to see it? And hopefully the editor says, yeah, I'd love to. So then they will send out the manuscript anywhere from, say, I think Michelle sent mine out to like 13 editors at once. And hopefully they have, somebody will be interested. In my case, somebody was interested. We actually had several publishers interested. So then I, the next part is that you actually will take phone calls with these editors where you just see if you get along. It's kind of like matchmaking a little bit. You know, do you like me? Do I like do I like you? Are we going to be able to work together? Because it's it's when you decide to publish a book, it's a little bit like an arranged marriage where you have to get along until the book comes out into the world. So you want to make sure that everybody is on the same page. You all have the same vision for your book. You all, you know, are excited about the same things because it would be horrible to have an editor who says, well, I'm going to publish your book. I don't really like it, but I think I can make money off it. In my case, I was really fortunate that the editor who did acquire it at um, Atria Books, uh, Tara Parsons, really loved my novel. And she had a few editorial suggestions, but they were all great ones. And I was thrilled. So we, from start to finish, the novel went out. It was, I believe it was like the second week of November and we had a deal by, I think it was around Thanksgiving. So it was very, very fast. And then once the book is you know, sold where they give you an advance against royalties and so on and so forth, they will then, my publisher, Atria Tara Parsons there, gave me an, an editorial letter that I worked with her to polish it to the next level. But once I am done editing that manuscript with my editor, it's all out of my hands. Then the publisher takes over. And even though I'm allowed some feedback, it's very much like your baby is out in the world. 
I was lucky that the publisher, they hired a wonderful desire, designer to, to work on it. And there's an article about the design of the cover on Spine that you can check out if you want to. And I was, I was so nervous when I first was waiting to see the book cover because I really had no idea what to expect because so many historical fiction covers are a woman looking out with her back turned to you onto this kind of picturesque uh, landscape and they're all very pretty but I thought well, my book is not really like that it's kind of like a dark ghost story gothic about you know love and tragedy and so on and so forth but I did not get that at all I had this wonderful image that is a photograph it looks like a daguerreotype actually of a woman who represents one of the ghosts in my book and I, I couldn't be more pleased so here we are now, and I would say it's been about six months since my last edits, and now we're getting ready to launch where the book has been printed. I got my first bound copies about two weeks ago. I know that there have been orders placed, and I know that it's been picked up by a number of book clubs. I've had some reviews come in. Kirkus gave it a starred review, which made me very, very happy. You know, it's it's sort of now it's like my baby is heading out into the world and all I can do is is hope that people are kind to it. That's awesome. So do you have any uh, future novels planned that you want to talk about? I have a few things underway. I'm still working on the first novel, which I had started my first national novel writing months so long ago, and I'm still kind of waiting to figure out exactly how to pull that one together. And that one is set in 1888. England, 1888 England, try saying that fast. <laughs> and it is about an artist and his wife and the woman, a woman who models for, for them. And there's all sorts of, you know, secrets and lies and absinthe, as I like to say. And I'm also working on a middle grade novel, which I'm currently editing. And that is set in contemporary times because after writing several really, really research heavy books, I was just like, you know what? I need to write what I know is this, as the cliche says. So I'm setting that one in Brooklyn in the neighborhood I live in, Fitness Park, and it's about a mom and her daughter. And it's, but it's, it's not that different in some ways in theme because it's a reworking of the Persephone myth. And the mother is a single mom and her daughter is growing up and it's about all those tensions. Um, so those are the two that are, are closest to actually being something that will come out into the world. As far as what's going to be published next, I always say it's like whichever one gets finished first and Michelle finds uh, editor for. Thank you so much, Chris. Oh, great. It was great talking with you. It was Thank great you. talking to you, too. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcast. Be sure to rate and review us. The show is hosted by Heba Tahir and edited by Eric Wilder. Our theme song is Sweet Berry Wine by Blue Wednesday. Spine is a production of Spine Magazine. For show notes, articles, audio and video about the enormous talent that goes into creating books, visit spinemagazine.co.